Hello and welcome. My name is Gregory Robinson, and I'm hosting with Sarah Clapman. And today we have DP here with us. Uh, DP, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you do? Yeah, so uh, I'm basically a little bit of introduction about myself. So I basically belong from the engineering department and in particular mechanical and materials engineering. And I'm currently a PhD candidate in the department and I work on uh, heat pipes. And I'll be going through you know, my, my research uh, in this interview. So a heat pipe is basically you know, a, a copper lookalike pipe, which is a passive heat transfer device. Uh, passive in the sense that it does not have any active mechanism or components in it. And it can uh, transfer the heat from one end to the other end really, really fast. So just to give you an idea how a heat pipe looks like. So this is, you know, how a heat pipe looks like. And like a pipe, uh, essentially. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is just, yeah, yeah, this is just a metal copper pipe. And, you know, it has two ends. So, so this is one of the end and that's one of the other end. And uh, so basically how this works is you have one of the end as the hot end and one of the end as the cold end. And this copper pipe uh, has a, a working fluid inside it, which basically circulates and transfers the heat from one end to the other end. So if you have, uh, let's say a heat source and you basically punch the heat pipe into the heat source, uh, the working fluid inside the copper pipe takes up all the heat from the heat source and then it starts to boil, right? And as it starts to boil, it goes up uh, because, you know, water vapor is a uh, little bit lighter than uh, the water liquid. And then as it moves up and then how it works is you have a heat sink over here. So basically as the water vapor goes up over here and as soon as it comes in contact with the heat sink, the water vapor condenses and it releases all the heat. And then as it releases the heat, the water vapor converts into uh, the water liquid and then it comes back again to the hot end. And then it uh, boils again and then it goes up around like this and that's how you know the cycle works. So does it over and over again within the actual pipe? Yeah, it's right. done over and over again with an actual pipe. But as you can see that there is no active mechanism or components uh, involved in it. So, you know, and uh, people might not know about heat pipes. I mean, when, when I first you know, got the project, I myself didn't knew that something like this existed. Uh, mm -hmm. But people are not aware that heat pipes are basically used in a lot of applications that surround us. Uh, starting from laptops and mobile phones and automobiles. So in mobile phones, you have the battery and the heat source where, you know, uh, all the heating takes place. And then there's a heat pipe, which basically takes away the heat from the source. And it uh, tries to uh, dissipate the heat somewhere uh, where there's a little bit of space or airflow cooling going on. And similarly in, you know, computer PCs as well, because nowadays, uh, you know, uh, computers are coming with, you know, more and more CPUs and too much, uh, you know, extensive uh, 
uh, all the requirements and that's why you know the heat pipes are used over there to actively cool all the, the heating components and then you know in laptops as well as in automobiles also it's used to uh, basically cool the injection plastic molds that you see in the dashboards and all of that yeah so basically we are surrounded by heat pipes people are not aware that this is a technology that exists and it's so much useful this may be a silly question, but in my mind, I can think back to like the old days when I had a huge laptop that uh, had an actual fan in it. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Now that yes. I think about so, it, like I don't actually hear fans in laptops anymore. So is that just because they haven't improved like the fan yeah, quality so, of the sound or it's like actually just a heat pipe? Yeah. So the heat, heat pipes pipe. have been improved, you know, uh, a lot over the years. So previously, uh, you know, the heat pipes used to take away the heat and then the fan used to dissipate the heat away. And now the heat pipes are getting smaller and smaller and uh, it is more smarter than before. So, yeah, there is still that technology, but in a more smarter way that people won't realize that something of that sort is, is, is there. It's there in Samsung S8, uh, I'm aware of, and S9 as well, yeah. That's really neat. So it sounds like heat pipes are really important in a lot of the technology that we use every day and that they're getting smarter and smaller and better developed. So it sounds like they're on a good track. Where do you come in on that? How are you helping to make them better? Yeah, so uh, so my project basically deals with, uh, you know, uh, with the automobile companies. So, you know, like the automobile sector is one of, uh, one of the very important sectors in, in Canada and US especially. Uh, so, and there's a lot of demand in, in manufacturing, you know, uh, cars every day. Uh, so the way heat pipe works is, you know, uh, in order to manufacture more and more parts, the, the parts which are built with uh, the plastic injected uh, molded parts, for example, the dashboard and sometimes, uh, you know, the bumper as well, and all the, all the other parts which are made up of plastic. So you need to cool them quickly so that you know the, the, the cycle time is less and the, the production is, is fewer. So uh, although the heat pipes are getting smaller and smarter, uh, the thing is that there are a lot of factors that actually uh, govern the heat transfer dynamics. As you can see, you know, you can basically change the geometry very easily. You can make it longer and you, uh, you can make the diameter uh, a little bit more thicker. And then you can use different type of working fluids. So my job is to, you know, look for the optimum design parameters that will, you know, give the maximum heat transfer rate or the desired heat transfer rate so that, you know, uh, it exactly does what it is supposed to do rather than, you know, uh, trying to uh, change the design and doing a lot of trials and errors. Yeah. So when I, when I think about it, I'm a very simplistic person. And so I would think that if you're changing one variable, it'd be like a linear change in terms of how it um, acts upon heat transfer. But you're talking about multiple, multiple different variables that work. Yeah, yeah, there, there, are, a lot of, there are a lot of different variables. Uh, I mean, uh, heat pipes, uh, by, by the name of it, it looks very simple. But you know, there's a, there's a phase change process going on continuously inside it. Right, so it's very uh, important to to control that kind of phase change process as well as 
the geometrical parameters uh, as well as you know the, the working fluid which is inside uh, for example you know in in canada especially since it's it's a more on the colder side so you you need such type of working fluids for example which has a lesser boiling point than water so that you know it starts operating in in you know cool temperatures as well but usually distilled water is is used because that's like one of like easily available and uh, you know you can use it right away yeah so, yeah interesting you know that's really interesting it's cool that there's so many applications for it um one thing that just keeps popping up in my mind i have to say it is that both there's a hot side and there's a cold side so you could say your research yes. is hot and cold you're a big <laughs> yes. Katy perry fan yeah yeah so yeah i mean this is this is Not a really. very you know uh, uh easy technology to to explain to to anybody i mean i i do explain it to my parents and my friends and i i say to them that you you, you can look at it and it's just a copper pipe and it looks so so much you know simpler thing uh, and there's a hot end and there's a cold end but inside uh, there's lot lot of things going on and you know one one of the challenges for me is to you know model it in in the computer uh, because as you can see this is a closed pipe right so you really can't uh, you know look inside it what's happening you know when it's operating uh so one of the challenges uh for me is to you know model it numerically like with computers and exactly mimic you know the the flow physics that is going inside and that's uh that's where you know i i come into the picture and you know trying to model it so that uh the industries are you know uh in in any industries that it is being used so they don't you know uh, manufacture a lot and lot of feed pipes just for the trial and error purposes to to see which one gives the best performance yeah uh you mentioned that uh, you talk about heat pipes with your family yeah which is amazing i'm just picturing you at your dining room table saying hey so i have this copper pipe are your family enthused about hearing about your copper pipe project yeah i mean they they probably didn't realize that you know it's it's so much useful and we are basically surrounded by this copper pipes everywhere i mean if if you go to western or any places this is this is used in uh, you know heating ventilation and air conditioning as well uh, it's summer so obviously this hvac thing is is into the play right now so yeah. it's it's very very exciting and even you know when when i took the project even i didn't realize how important this is and now i see that well i mean this this has a really you know broad applications and even you know uh in the last uh week uh, there was a launch of the spacex so this is used in space applications as well Whoa. uh just because you know you can you you know you know how you are, the the plants uh basically uh uh take all all the water that is been given to them uh, by the mm. capillary action so the capillary action actually goes against the gravity right so uh you, you can uh, you can uh, take a simple experiment i mean if there's a spill of water or tea or coffee you can just uh put a tissue in and you can see uh, the the fluid basically rising up against the gravity so one of the important uh thing for the c pipe is that this can work against the gravity as well 
and in uh, spacecraft applications where there is no gravity this is really useful in in keeping your you know keeping the chambers warm or cool or you know uh, like uh, basically according to the need of 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 the art yeah your your work is helping astronauts that's amazing i would love to put that on my resume yes hi i got into space with my science yeah yeah it's really cool what was like the uh, most unique or just the weirdest place that you never thought like, oh, I wouldn't expect to see a heat pipe there. And it is. Well, for me, I mean, you know, I got into I got into engineering at Western in in 2015 in, in the Spencer's engineering building. And that's a really, really old building. And I used to see the copper pipes on the top, like on the ceiling. I, ne I never knew that those are called heat pipes. Unless and until when I got this project in in 2018 after I finished my masters and then I look uh, you know on the on the floor on the ceiling and I see these heat pipes everywhere and I'm like wow like this is this is something I, I never expected that those were heat pipes and it's there all throughout you know the Spencer's engineering building and it's a, it's a pretty old building so the HVAC is pretty tight over there and you can actually you know see see the heat pipes everywhere so. When I'm walking with my friends in the engineering building, I just say to them, just look up and you can see some copper pipes and well, those are heat pipes and working for the HVAC systems to work properly. Yeah. No way. That's awesome. Well, I just want to say thank you so much for coming in, DP. It's been a yeah. pleasure having you on this uh, Western Research Forum episode and uh, we wish you the best of luck going forward. Okay. Yeah. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah. Yeah. No problem. Take care. Yeah. Take care. Bye. Hello, we have John Palmer here. John, I uh, just wanted to say thanks for coming in. What, uh, what program are you in? Uh, I'm in the pathology department under the Schulich Faculty of Med and Dentistry um, in my second year of my master's program, research-based. No way. How are you liking that program so far? Oh, it's going quite well. Um, I'm nearing the last couple months. It's been really, honestly, awesome all around. I uh, learned a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah, can't complain at all. Yeah. Now that I think about it, since I know you're doing a bioinformatics project, your project probably hasn't been affected that much because you can do that work pretty much anywhere. Exactly. Yeah. No, that's <laughs> that's uh, that's been a real uh, a real benefit. So, although there are definitely still like mild inconveniences and some things that maybe take a little longer, uh, for the most part, I, I I've retained like most of my ability to work actually so it's been nice yeah just trying to get used to working from home but that's that's uh yeah, yeah. so that's nice that you can still graduate on time though it is so it is aiming to sure. aiming to hopefully yeah, yeah. yeah i was literally as soon as it happened i'm like you know what i'm just gonna stick around for another semester because i'm not gonna yeah. get it <laughs> yeah, yeah a lot of my friends are doing the same uh in wet lab work for yeah. sure anyways john do you want to tell us a little bit about what exactly you do yeah absolutely um, so yeah, I'll just kind of give you the uh, straight to the point, um, s simplified version of what I do. And yeah, so my research focuses on HIV. And so as I'm li likely everyone is aware, um, it's a virus that is, um, affects the immune system cells within our own human body. Uh, when HIV um, infection goes untreated, it leads to the outcome of AIDS. That's your um, 
complete uh, kind of complete destruction of your immune system. So essentially, any any small common cold infection could even kill you at that point. Um, it's found HIV is found all over the world, um, although it remains kind of highest prevalence in the continent of Africa. Um, so more specifically, my work is looking at the surface receptor protein that's found on the surface of, of HIV particles. So just to uh, back up to clarify, um, when you're picturing an HIV viral particle, um, it's... As we all do. Yeah, yeah. As, uh, on my wall. Yeah, right over here. Yeah, it's not, not, you might not have to think about that too often. So just very simply, it's kind of like, looks like a cell just far, like as you picture a bodily cell or any other cell, just far, far smaller and far, far simpler. So uh, on, it has kind of a plasma membrane that contains within it all of the contents that the virus needs to kind of pass on. Um, on the surface of this plasma membrane are these special proteins that I am focusing on. Now this protein, there's only, there's only one protein. It's a very, it's, viruses are relatively simple like that. There's just one protein. Now this protein, it's, it's interesting. So that protein is responsible for making the attachment uh, attaching HIV to our um, bodily immune system cells. After that attachment, this protein can then allow HIV to get into those cells. So it, it's responsible for kind of those first stages of HIV infection. So um, kind of that's starting off the infection, if you will. Do we know where these spike proteins actually, like what, what exactly they bind to? Yeah, they, exactly. Yeah, they... Um, target a specific protein, surface protein, also found on, um, now found on our immune system cells called CD4. Okay. So the actual protein I'm studying is called GP120, and GP120 binds to CD4. That's the main interaction that you should know. Yeah. So basically, it's important to keep in mind, yeah, this GP120 surface protein that I'm studying, it is exposed to the extracellular environment. So when HIV is in our human body, it can commonly get attacked by our immune system defenses. Now, GP120 also, it's kind of like an arms race, also has a remarkable, incredible capability to adapt and evade the attacks that get thrown at it by our immune system. So picture this, early on in, in HIV infection, um, in the initial stages, our immune system kind of locks on and targets this surface protein, GP120, and it's, it, it does a good job at actually destroying a bunch of HIV viruses. But GP120 kind of undergoes multiple of these structural changes to almost just like morph itself into something that looks, uh, uh, the protein looks, starts to look totally different. And when um, enough of these changes um, kind of accumulate, GP120 will eventually become 
kind of unrecognizable to the immune system that was targeting it. And when that happens, um, the HIV population in your body is free to replicate as much as it wants. And so that it's that um, it's the adaptation in this surface protein GP120 that I am focusing my research on. So it's like changing the actual amino acids within that spike protein. Exactly. So you can actually find the amino acids like the, your, uh, your antibodies can't find that. Exactly. Exactly. So <laughs> antibodies. It, it exactly. can still function though and attach to the CD4s. And exactly. Exactly. It's, it's very remarkable. It's, it's <laughs> incredible that these changes happen very fast. And they still, as you mentioned, retain that key function. It still always has to accomplish this goal of binding and getting HIV into the cell. And it still does that. But all in the meanwhile, it's kind of changing itself to avoid being targeted. Interesting. So it's kind of like playing hide and seek with your immune system. Exactly. But my favorite thing about viruses, I think, is that um, they're really special because nobody can really decide if they're alive or not. Exactly. Exactly. That's a, that's a huge debate that's been, you know, that's gone on for a long time. And I think that it's, I think that there have been more um, arguments leaning toward that they're kind of not alive just, just due to the fact that that's all, that's all based on the fact that when a virus is just floating on its lonesome in space, it has no kind of, none of its own metabolism or function that's going on within it. It, it is completely dependent on using uh, cells, other cells that it will infect in order to replicate itself. Yeah, it's, it's very fascinating though. Yeah, that's a, that's a very interesting point you bring up. So then your research is talking about something that's on something that might not be alive that ends up being fatal to some people. Exactly, yeah. This... This, um, that process of this surface protein adapting, it's found in just about a, basically every HIV infection. It's kind of a, a, almost like a crucial step in the HIV infection process. And um, kind of, I guess without it, HIV might remain kind of at low levels and continue to be suppressed and like, just like held in a small population, but it's that final, like when it finally just becomes invisible, if you will, to the immune system, it can, it's as if the immune system is unable to do anything basically. Yeah. So I've got a question here for you, John. I'm just curious, how exactly is it mutating like this? Is it because like the genetic code that codes for these proteins is changing or is it a variant splice that's happening or is there some sort of protein, um, RNA to protein mismatch going on? It's, it's um, basically all mainly substitutions and delete, insertion and deletion events that are occurring in the genetic code coding for this protein. So um, actually, funny you mentioned, my research more specifically focuses in on insertion and deletion events. That's known as indels. 
Um, and those events, um, so they're either adding or removing basically amino acids from the protein itself. So when you do that, it can actually lead to, in the case of indels, uh, quite drastic changes to this protein. So you can, you can kind of lengthen uh, kind of one arm of this protein or, or completely shrink it down. So indels, for one, cause no, pretty drastic changes, which is um, part of the reason that my work has chosen to focus on indels specifically. Substitutions definitely also play a role. But substitutions have also been very well studied. And okay. so I'm choosing to focus on indels for that reason as well. And the substitutions, I'm assuming, they wouldn't actually have a reading frame change. Exactly. So the indels, essentially, every three amino acids, uh, not amino acids, what am I talking about? Three uh, nitrogenous bases make an amino acid. And so when you add an extra, um, an extra nitrogenous base in there, like your a, your adenine, thymine, cytosine, guanine. Like when you add an extra one in there, it changes how the DNA, the RNA, turns into a protein. And so that Absolutely. just one insertion or even two insertions or deletions will completely change everything after that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. That's that's a very um, notable property of at least some indels. Yeah, as you mentioned, substitutions they will not disrupt that strict frame reading frame yeah. um, just one amino acid change exactly yeah um with indels uh i'll just kind of add to that what you're saying there we definitely uh know that um indels can shift that reading frame what's interesting is that the indels that i actually detect in my study happen to be strongly biased toward lengths of multiples of three. So in frame indels. And that's, that's just kind of due to the fact that viruses that would have a frame shifting indel event would kind of cause the protein to malfunction most of the time. And so it'd be kind of problematic for the virus if it's, if it has like a malformed dysfunctional protein on a yeah. surface. So it probably can't get in. And so that's why most, not all, but most of the indels that we see tend to be in multiples of three. Okay. That actually makes a lot of sense. And that's kind of where I was coming at with, is the protein still functional? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but with it, when you, when you get those frame shift yeah. sizes of indels, it tends to be that you, kind, you likely will kill that particular virus. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's fascinating. Now we're getting, we're running out of time, but we haven't really got into your research, ironically. Is, <laughs> that, is there a quick like summary elevator pitch of, what exactly you study? Yeah, um, basically the core core takeaway of my research is back to what I mentioned about insertions and deletions. So I'm looking at insertions and deletions in the genetic or uh, genetic sequence, which also translates to the amino acid sequence within within the surface regions of this protein. So there are regions that we know 
kind of control the most important parts of this protein that are on the surface. There's kind of these big loop structures. My research is looking specifically at how quickly or, or how fast do indels accumulate in those surface regions on these proteins. So essentially the rate at which indels are happening, which is believed to be something that could kind of correlate with um, maybe how fast you see HIV progress in its um, course of disease or its infection. So, yeah. yeah. And that, that makes a lot of sense because if it's rapidly able to change, then it can rapidly evade the immune system. Exactly. Exactly. That's fascinating. That seems like really important research as well to do, especially since there's no cure for it or, or anything. So Exactly. It's yeah, you're definitely important. right about that. Thank you. I appreciate that. Well, thank you, man. Thank you're you. You're very welcome. You're very welcome. Thank you both, Greg and Sarah. I appreciate the chance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's, uh, Maybe like 20 years down the road. Yeah, yeah. HIV is um, still quite well studied. So yeah, yeah. for sure. Anyways, Luckily, you're lucky thank there. You. Thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. And You're very uh, welcome. Thank you best. both. Thanks again. Yeah. Hello and welcome back. We have Rebecca here with us. Uh, Rebecca, why don't you tell us a little bit about your research? My name is Rebecca and I am a member of the Karish lab in the biochemistry department here at Western. Uh, we focus mainly on the development of methods and genetic tools for DNA delivery, cloning, and storage, particularly in biotechnology biotechnologically relevant microorganisms. So my project specifically is aimed to develop designer synthetic organelles, specifically one that fixes nitrogen. That is so cool. What is an organelle? An organelle is like a subcompartment that's within this, within like the whole cell. So you've probably heard of like the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell or the nucleus. Those are all organelles. So they're enclosed by a membrane, basically, within the cell. Interesting. So I've, I've never actually heard of somebody trying to make their own designer organelle. I've only ever heard of making like organoids, which is much different. <laughs> yeah, organoids being like um, Big organ. small organs outside of the body. Sort of, yeah, that you develop from like stem cells. Um, okay. But, uh, so, this is much different. <laughs> much smaller. Yes, exactly. Yes. Much smaller. So it's a subcomponent <laughs> of the cell. So it's really, right. I'm kind of curious, how exactly do you go about this? Do you start from scratch and say, let's somehow try to develop an organelle? Or do you start with another organelle and try to change it and morph it into something else? So I guess in terms of like the context of my... Um, project itself. My goal is more focused around the nitrogen fixation part. Um, but in terms of making an organelle, um, the, the approach that we're using in this case is um, based on endosymbiotic theory. So that's basically the same theory of as how uh, the mitochondria and the chloroplast actually arose. And that's by a free living bacteria that gets engulfed by another cell. And then based on their relationship, they, if it's mutual or at least um, some sort of selection pressure, then it, that cell will be retained within the other. So that's kind of what we're trying to aim to do. So we're taking a cell that's naturally able to fix nitrogen 
and then trying to fuse that within another cell. Gotcha. Okay. Interesting. That is cool. really interesting. Yeah. I don't think I've ever heard of it. Doing <laughs> yeah, that. It's funny because like you can you can't even see the cells when you're working with them, let alone whether or not they're actually going in another one. Oh, that must be kind of frustrating because you can never see your your work. You don't know if it's working. Exactly. I have to come back about three or five days later and see what my results are. Yeah. So when you say that you're looking at nitrogen fixation, um, what is that? Why does it matter? Right. Great question. So basically it's around surrounding the nitrogen problem, which is basically the fact that there is a limited availability of fixed nitrogen in um, the soil. And um, so basically most of the nitrogen that's in the um, globe, I guess, (laughs) is uh, atmospheric. So it's connected by a triple bond, which is extremely stable. And there's only one enzyme that can actually convert atmospheric nitrogen into biologically active nitrogen or ammonium. So it's called nitrogenase and it's in these diazotrophic or nitrogen fixing bacteria. And um, basically there aren't enough of them naturally in the soil to provide um, like crops with enough nitrogen to have a big enough crop yield to feed our like ever-growing population. So back in the 1950s, um, the Haber-Bosch process was developed and that's basically a chemical way to, it involves like burning natural gas with atmospheric nitrogen and then you can create ammonium, but it's obviously burning natural gas. So tons of greenhouse gases. And then when we have extra nitrogen being applied to our crops, the water that runs off uh, is full of nitrogen and that causes um, like aquatic nitri- or eutrophication or toxic algae blooms. So then it kills everything in the lake. And it also costs money to make these fertilizers. So it's just like one thing after another that this is just like a continuous problem all over the globe that we have to solve. Right. So your your research is designed then as an alternative to this this like um, burning process. And so you're trying to mitigate the like environmental effects and also <laughs> use this really, really old process. Like endosymbiosis has been around much longer than humans, right? This idea that like one organism eats another and then uses that eaten organism and it just like, you're mine now and I can do whatever you can, like absorbing somebody else's superpowers. That's so cool. Yeah, so it that's exactly right. We're trying to like re- revolutionize the agricultural um, industry really because this would either reduce but ultimately um, eliminate the use of nitrogen fertilizers. So what type of cells are you actually trying to get your nitrogen producing cells into? Um, So we, our candidate organisms are Cyanorhizobium mellilodi and Saccharomyces cerevisiae, which in turn are just a bacterium and yeast, uh, just like standard budding yeast. Um, So Cyanorhizobium, it's a alpha proteobacteria basically it's just that's like the same type of bacteria that the mitochondria once was so that's promising (laughs) but it the key part is that it's diazotrophic meaning that it fixes nitrogen 
And the cool thing is that this has already been um, like proven with E. coli, engineered E. coli. So another group of researchers in the States have done this and we're basically doing the same thing that they did in S. Lodi, just to make sure that it's like a proof of principle that it works before we focus on the nitrogen fixing aspects. But um, yeah, the reason why we're using Saccharomyces instead of plants at first is because it... Um, grows a lot faster. It's a lot cheaper. It's a lot easier to work with. Plants, on the other hand, they take a long time to grow. So you're talking like generations of plants taking years, whereas yeast is only an hour and a half. So it, it, it's a much better model to work with. Okay. I've, I've never, in, in my understanding how the whole endosymbiotic theory occurred is that a unicellular organism took over another unicellular organism. And then those unicellular organisms eventually evolved into multicellular organisms. And I may have my timeline a little bit wrong here, but has there ever been a case where a multicellular organism took over a unicellular organism? Yeah, so I think that what you're talking about would be called secondary endosymbioses, which is more like it's more common with um, algae, where like algae are already eukaryotic, but then they take another one so they i'm not i'm not very familiar with secondary endosymbiosis but i know that it does happen this that we are trying to reproduce is the it's very high risk unfortunately for me but um <laughs> that's mostly because we still don't really know the mechanisms by which endosymbiosis happened it's been like long debated over time that it was like what happened, but now we've settled on, yes, it was endosymbiosis, but how exactly was the cell taken up and like maintained? We're not still sure, or like how often do these events happen? So these are things that I'm gonna have to figure out. That's yeah. cool. Wasn't this like from yeah. like hundreds of millions of years ago that this sort of happened? That was the idea? I think 2.5 million. Whoa, okay. It's been a minute. Yeah. Yeah. Not 100 million, <laughs> 2.5 million. So that's a little bit less. You're using a process that's millions and millions of years old to deal with problems that are super modern, right? Right. So the way that we're kind of overcoming that problem is we're using um, a protocol called um, PEG-mediated cell fusion. So PEG is called polyethylene glycol, and it's uh, a chelating agent. It basically brings like the cell membranes close together. And it's been shown that by doing this transformation, you can also uh, remove the yeast cell wall, which makes it more permeable for the other cell. Um, we can do this process to like basically artificially get it into the cell. But then once we get it in, it's a matter of making sure that the host uh, machinery that basically doesn't want anything to come in breaks down our cell. So <laughs> it's just one problem after the next. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely sounds pretty high risk. So how come you got into a project like this when there are so many risks? Because it's <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, well, my, my PI wrote a grant, so that's usually <laughs> where it starts. But, 
secret of science. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you were like so, the honors thesis student, maybe in his lab, and then he wrote that, and then eventually you're just like, all right, I'll do my master's. Yeah, exactly. So I actually did my undergrad here at Western, and I did the internship program as well. So that's how I met my PI. I worked for his uh, biotech startup called Designer Microbes. Uh, so I was in my like in between third and fourth year, and then I was able to continue on with him in fourth year. And then I was going to do a master's, and he was like, "Why not a PhD?" And I was like, "Okay." <laughs> so, and then this is just a really cool project. I know it's high risk, but it's almost worth the risk because just making synthetic organelles in general is a very big uh, frontier that's happening right now in synthetic biology. So it's cool to be just in the works. Yeah. It's definitely not only high risk, but it's, it's high reward. You could right, solve exactly. some, uh, some food crises that are happening not only now, but in the future. And, uh, yeah, for sure. also help it's not them. only the environmental and the economic, it's, poverty malnutrition and everything too pretty much everything wrong with the world yeah like no big deal that's neat so in a in a perfect world then how do you see your research being used to its optimum potential um well i'd like to see Basically, I guess the one critical thing that I <laughs> left out was that this nitrogenase enzyme um, is only in diazotrophic bacteria, as I mentioned, but these diazotrophic bacteria only interact with legumes, uh, so like beans, soybeans. Um, but the majority of our crops are cereals, so corn, wheat, flour, um, sweet flour, the same. Anyways, <laughs> um, corn was the other one, but um, basically, to see those, to see nitrogen-fixing organelles specifically in those roots and having them growing everywhere, all over the globe, would be awesome. But then we have another like confounding factor of bioethics and will people eat GMO plants? Oh, you're getting into that! Wow. Yes. <laughs> Synthetic biology, really. That's one of the things that I love about it is how interdisciplinary it is. It's never things to stop thinking about. <laughs> Since you bring up GMOs, I'm, one of my questions that I'm kind of curious about is why not just have the nitrogenase gene inserted into another organism? Is there certain problems with that? Does it have to work with like other enzymes or something? Right. So another great question. Um, people have been working on this for the past like at least 30 years, but there are several challenges with converting this over. Um, so the first being that we're working with bacterial DNA, so it's prokaryotic and organized into operons where it's um, a regulatory element and then gene after gene after gene. So they're all being um, expressed at the same level. Whereas in the eukaryotes, it's not polycystronic. So, and since there's so many um, genes, trying to balance their stoichiometry is difficult in the eukaryotic host. But more than that, it's nitrogenase itself is super sensitive to oxygen. And if it's in a, an environment where there's too much oxygen, then it becomes 
irreversibly unactivated. So <laughs> that's a big problem. But what that means cellularly is that it can't be just like expressed. So in like a eukaryotic cell in the nucleus is where it would be expressed unless it's got targeting peptide or yeah, peptides on them to go to different organelles, then it'll be expressed in the cytosol where oxygen concentrations are too high. So then you have to try and target it and still get the stoichiometric regulation. And it also consumes 16 ATP per reaction. So it basically needs its own source of energy as well. <laughs> so yeah. And you still have to hope once it gets there that it will still work. So that's another yeah, yeah, exactly. That's really interesting. It's fascinating. And it sounds like a really great project to be a part of. And even though it may be risky, but you know, you've got four years of your PhD to do and hopefully probably five now. <laughs> five. Yeah. Probably 19 hurt everybody. But um, yeah. anyways, thank you so much for coming on. We wish you the best. We hope okay. you solve all of our world's problems. <laughs> if not, we're disappointed. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, really appreciate it though that you came on and uh, wish you the best going forward. Thanks. Take care. Take care. Bye. Bye. Hello and welcome back. We are here with Amy. Uh, Amy, why don't you tell us about what uh, what program are you in here at Western? Uh, thank you. Um, to the Amy Josephine, and uh, I'm in second year of health promotion, PhD. No way! Congrats. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, what exactly do you do uh, for your research? I would say that uh, it kept changing. <laughs> I came uh, uh, with the idea to work on teenage pregnancies and uh, connect it to the trauma and violence informed care to see if that concept of trauma and violence informed care, which is new in Rwanda, because I'm from Rwanda, can help managing the prevalence of teenage pregnancy. And then that's why uh, I gave my application, seeing how empowering uh, girls can help in preventing teenage pregnancy. Uh, that's what I will focus on today. And then I'm saying that it kept changing because I ended up by finding another interest in research. And now I'm preparing the, my comprehensive exam on intersectionality among gender, uh, disability, and violence. Wow, that is some important, complicated work. So you're a Kimberly Crenshaw kind of gal. Yeah, right. I would say yes. Yeah. That's I don't know who that is. <laughs> well, you, Amy, could you tell us a little bit about intersectionality and how it applies to your research? That's a, a concept which seems to me more comprehensive because when we want to talk about the violence and the gender and the disability issues, not only that, but also the first thing I was introducing about the trauma and violence from the care and uh, the teenage pregnancy, uh, it's that intersectionality bring the concept of holistic way to look at different situation, especially with the background uh, back home in Rwanda, in developing country, where we had the problem of uh, genocide against the Tutsi in 1994 uh, with uh, relevant, uh, related consequences 
on uh, the health and social and development situation of uh, everyone, especially young girls and women. Hmm. Yeah. So are you actually doing like interviews with anybody or is there already pre-collected data from the, these women that were, I'm assuming, probably born around 1994? I would say that um, what I'm doing now, because I came to Canada end of 2018, I'm only here one year and a half ago. And But back home, I was working with a Canadian project on maternal newborn child health for six years. And I had pretty much uh, experience um, uh, working in the health sector so that I got that interest to look at mental health and violence and uh, the gender uh, integration, women empowerment. That's why I'm really interested by vulnerable people, community intervention, uh, to look at the health promotion program uh, in which I am now doing my PhD. So you're focusing, as I understand it, your research on um, teenage pregnancy. Is that correct? That was my main interest. And uh, the application I did uh, for this specific interview was how to empower girls so that they can prevent teenage pregnancies. Yeah. So what's the... Um, obviously, avoiding teenage pregnancy has a lot of benefits, but what do you think... Um, what are you hoping that your your research will allow, um, I guess, the health practitioners that hopefully it gets translated to, to, to do to help these girls? Uh, to respond to that, I would maybe begin by what was my uh, interest thinking about that, why I was motivated to look at that side. It's because of the way I grown up. I had the, the fear I had as young girls uh, in Africa, in Rwanda, was to get pregnant. It was like not acceptable, social culturally, and I was the, the first uh, adult, uh, oldest uh, girls. So I was kind of, kind of, I grew up fearing how if I could get pregnant. And also, I was uh, I didn't get uh, to communicate with parents because culturally you were educated by aunts. But things changed uh, during the genocide. Also, I saw how uh, many young girls, especially Tutsi, were violated, abused, raped, and that was another motivation. And now I am a mother and uh, of five kids. Wow, congratulations. Yeah, thank you. Two of them are already adolescent. I was thinking now in my country, uh, the teenage pregnancies are really a huge problem of uh, uh, public health problem. How if I give my contribution, but it was not only enough to look at it in the way of linking it to the trauma and the virus from the care related to genocide and uh, insecurity and so on and so forth, but also to look at other factors like poverty, the condition we live in, and uh, the family coercion, discrimination. All of those were kind of things which were motivating me 
to look at that side. Mm. And those um, all seem to, to play into that sort of intersectional approach that you're taking to this research. Right. And wow. also the vulnerability. And also because I had the, the chance to, to work on a central level, like with the international organization like University of Western coming to Rwanda with the Global Affairs of Canada to sustain those kind of uh, intervention or like uh, Swiss cooperation. I, I also had the other uh, chance to work on the ground in the community. So I al always keep thinking, how can I contribute so that the policies the strategies are linked to the real problems we have in the community? Yeah. That's the way everybody should think, mm -hmm. honestly. Yeah. I applaud you. You don't, we don't get enough people like that. So that's, that's really important, especially right now. Um, yeah, I would say it depends on my age too, <laughs> because uh, I'm, I'm studying, of course, but uh, a student I'm with in health promotion are mostly young. Um, and uh, I find my well, you're, not old. you're not old yeah yeah uh, people <laughs> like to say that yes i'm young in mind but uh, i also have to say that the experience growing up uh leaving the youngest age go to the adulthood give some insight which bring really a good um aspect to to share with others when it comes to the research, knowledge translation. That's what I like uh, in Canada, that diversity so that we can see uh, different and learn uh, from each other. Wow, well, I'm sure the other students in your course are very grateful to have you there and to have you share your wisdom. Uh, some are grateful because I like to talk so much. Maybe <laughs> others who manage time, I don't know what they are, they might say. And on that question, sometimes it's also challenging because when you take the intervention, you you you. I said yes, I like to talk, but you have also that um, mindset thinking because they don't know necessarily the context I'm coming from they might not necessarily understand what I'm talking about. So you, you keep struggling to explain a lot. Maybe they have understood, but you keep explaining. Mm -hmm. So it's good, but on the other side, uh, you have to know where to put your feet somehow, yeah. Mm -hmm. Before you came to Western, I'm assuming you actually grew up in Rwanda? and have lived there the majority of your life. And so you, this is really close to your heart, knowing all of these problems. And you've probably known people that have gone through some of this stuff as well, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's correct. Because I grown up in Rwanda and uh, I did the all my education there, the primary, secondary school. I did the general nursing and then mental health, clinical psychology. And I, I have, I had a master's in public health before coming here. And I was really lucky also to raise uh, my siblings after genocide. Uh, I became a mother, Ilya mother, uh, being an orphan. And that gives me also another uh, 
way of looking at things and learning from different things, good and bad, of course. But what came out of all of those experience is the resilience be, beside all of the things and uh, the way to try to keep a positive mindset and also to keep asking myself, what can I do to help others? That's what I did by creating a local non-government organization back home. So here when I, I, I do my study, I'm a mother, I'm activist, and I'm a student, I'm project manager, everything comes together. But uh, what I like is the, that this country is a, a, a good space, especially London, good community for learning opportunity. It's a matter to select and plan where so that you know where to contribute better. Yeah. Mimi, you're amazing. Oh, thank you. Wow. <laughs> I like your smile. You are awesome. <laughs> thank you. I'm just so excited. I would, I would love to have you talk forever. Yeah. We are getting a little bit close on time, yeah. but um, yeah. you have a beautiful smile as well, by the way. Yeah. I keep saying that's the only gift which left after the genocide without parent. All we Honestly, had was a just at least give smile to people so that they get hope. Yeah, the best medicine. Honestly, smiling and laughing, and I think people just don't do enough of it. Yeah, that's so true. Nice to meet other people that smile a lot and uh, and just enjoy life, but at the same time are committed to making the world a better place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on, Amy. We really appreciate it, and we wish you the best with your uh, with your PhD here. And uh, hopefully everything goes well, and we can make some changes going forward in the future, and uh, help the world become a better place. I was happy to learn from this first interview with you. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> this has been Gradcast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I've been your host, Sarah, and my co-host was Greg. We've been speaking with people from the Western Research Forum, and this episode was also produced by Greg. If you'd like to be involved with the show or get in contact with us, email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Gradcast Radio. To listen to us, we're on the radio at CHRW 94.9 FM. You can also find all of our episodes on our website at gradcast.ca or on podcast apps like Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Alternatively, select podcasts have also been uploaded to YouTube at Gradcast Radio. Thank you for listening and have a great night.